VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When we look back at historical anniversaries of major events, we tend to think about the areas and the people that were impacted. Lives were lost, but homes and businesses were rebuilt on the same land, and life tends to go back to normal after a certain amount of time. But as our world and our climate is constantly changing around us, one has to ask, what if this natural disaster happened today? Would we be in a better or worse position than we were in back then in terms of our infrastructure, communication, and overall disaster response? Well, that's what my guest today, Dr. David Call, is focusing on with his new book, Superstorm 1950. David, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Marshall. Yeah, you know, we we saw this and we had to get you on and we've been trying to get you for a while. So thank you for making the effort to uh, get on. Got to start with the first question every Weather Geeks guest gets. How'd you become a Weather Geek? I've been interested in weather my whole life, as long as I can remember. My mom was a, a math and science teacher and she always was encouraging an interest in science. So in, I grew up in Pennsylvania, but in kindergarten, my dad was temporarily transferred to Atlanta, Georgia, and they had a science fair. And she had me do a science project comparing the weather in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with Baltimore, Maryland, with Atlanta, Georgia. And then after that, I would do weather projects in the summer. I just record the weather. I grew up in Pennsylvania where there's this great show called Weather World done out of Penn State every day. And I was a huge fan of the show. I checked out all the books from the library on weather. And when I went to look at colleges, there weren't that many colleges offering meteorology. So I'm like, well, that makes it easy to, to narrow down the list. And I just kept going with it. I worked in broadcasting for a bit and eventually went back and got a master's and PhD and been at Ball State University for over 15 years now. And what, what part of Atlanta were you? I'm just curious. That's my home turf. I grew up here and I'm in the area now. Oh, gosh. I don't remember. We lived in a, a condo off of, I think it was Roswell Avenue. Okay. So you were probably up in the northern part of the Atlanta area. So I'm just kind of curious because I participated in my share of science fair projects around here as well. But I think I'm much older than you. Now, let me give you a little background on, on Dr. Call. Uh, he's an associate professor of geography and meteorology at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, where he teaches a range of classes from physical geography to mesoscale meteorology to storm chasing. Uh, his research examines how society deals with hazardous uh, winter weather, a la why he decided to write a book about this superstorm. And so I always appreciate someone with uh, Dr. Call's background because it's very similar to what we're trying to do at our program at the University of Georgia, where we have both atmospheric sciences and the geography or geographical perspective as well. So what inspired your focus on winter weather specifically? I went to graduate school in Syracuse, New York. And as you know, Syracuse is one of the snowiest cities in the country. And I had a, a mentor there, my master's um, advisor, and she saw I was doing this work on TV in the side. And she said, you know, you're the perfect person to sort of look at these things of how people react to weather communication. And this was back before meteorology was really starting to think about how people coped with weather. Our focus for so long in meteorology is let's get the forecast perfect. Let's get the forecast perfect. So when I first started doing this research, I got a lot of perplexing things from meteorologists and it was really confusing where to present my research and where to publish it. But then Hurricane Katrina happened 
And all of a sudden it became real obvious that we could put out an amazing forecast, yet we could still have this humongous disaster in terms of loss of life. And all of a sudden these societal issues really started to come to the fore and it's just led to this blossoming within meteorology of looking at these other aspects, how disasters affect different groups of people differently, how people react to warnings. And in a lot of respects compared to forecasting the weather, forecasting societal behavior is a lot more complicated and a lot more challenging. And that that leads me to your book. I mean, you have this new book out or or titled Superstorm 1950, the greatest simultaneous blizzard, ice storm, windstorm and cold outbreak of the 20th century. Uh, It was just released January 15th, I believe. So it's out there now and you can tell us where we can find it so that the listeners can dive into it. But just give our listeners a brief overview of the meteorology of that particular storm. Sure. Well, you can you can get the book from Purdue University Press or from Amazon, your your favorite bookseller. But this storm, I first discovered it in graduate school. It was around the time Paul Kosin and Lugusolini came out with their Northeast Snowstorm book. And they had a few pictures of weather maps from it. You look at weather maps and you see fronts rotating around low pressure. And sometimes I've wondered, what would happen if the fronts just kept going? And here they just kept going. We're getting winds from the south that are causing temperatures to cool cold fronts going from east to west, things we, we never see on weather maps. And they're talking about record-setting snowfall throughout the uh, Midwest and 100-mile-an-hour winds in Hartford, Connecticut. And these guys who studied hundreds of storms literally called it the storm of the 20th century. So I said, wow, this storm sounds bizarre in terms of the weather. And I started looking for more about it, and I really couldn't seem to get much of anything. Well, being a new professor after that, I had to focus on smaller projects, but I kept collecting things about the storm over the years. And finally, once I got promoted to associate professor, I got a sabbatical and I really dug into it. And what was amazing to me was it wasn't just a big snowstorm. The wind damage in New England, they compared it to the great New England hurricane of 1938. In fact, in Vermont, they said it was even worse. Meanwhile, down in the South, the record lows that they set obliterated previous record lows. In Atlanta, Georgia, for example, the old all-time November record low, so the coldest temperature in November was 11. This storm, the new record was three. We had places getting below zero, like in Tennessee, that never get below zero November. Even down in West Palm Beach, Florida, they got all the way down to 36 degrees. There was a humorous anecdote about tourists from New York deciding to go back to New York because they said it can't be that cold there. Yeah, that's those those numbers are impressive given the scale and scope and the geography of some of the numbers uh, that you're talking about. And so this really sort of highlights that you stress like in that book and in this storm, snow, ice, flooding, wind and cold. I mean, it had the full package. Um, one thing that initially comes to mind, because I, I don't know as much about the storm, I, I you know, in my research, I don't really focus much in the winter weather world. But you hear a lot about when we have these big storms now about the polar vortex and the weakening of the polar vortex and the intrusion of cold air. Um, Was this storm in any way related to sort of one of these breaches or weakening of the polar vortex? Yes, it was fueled by incredibly cold air, way off the charts below normal cold air that pushed all the way down to Alabama and Georgia. So the jet stream did an unprecedented dip, I believe, for November. And because that cold air was so cold, the speeds of the jet stream were incredible, over 150 knots. 
And when we have that much wind running through the atmosphere, all our processes of lifting of air just get accelerated. So we can have incredible drops in air pressure. We can have incredibly large amounts of moisture just blossoming in from the Gulf of Mexico, dumping incredible amounts of precipitation. Throughout Pennsylvania, pretty much every observing station got anywhere from three to six inches of liquid precipitation. Of course, some areas it was snow, some areas it was rain, some areas it was ice. Um, but we just saw this incredible growth of this storm. The other thing with this storm, in meteorology, we tend to focus on the L's, the low pressures on our weather maps. But here, the untold story of this was this incredible high pressure that developed in response to this massive dip in the jet stream over Labrador. And that blocked the storm, prevented it from going out into the ocean, and caused it to just keep snowing and raining or incredible winds in New England over the same areas for an extended period of time. So I think that was the other big part of the storm, the high pressure that just helped supply the cold air and, and prevent the storm from really moving. Yeah, you make a really good point because oftentimes in meteorology classes or just in broad meteorology discourse, it's the lows, it's the storms, but sometimes the highs can be just as interesting from a meteorological perspective in a winter storm like this, or perhaps in a, a prolonged heat wave or a drought as well. So Weather geek moment. Do not ignore the highs, the anti-cyclones as well, exactly, uh, because they actually can have hazardous weather. Let me take a break and we'll come back and we'll dig more into this book. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. David Call from Ball State University about Superstorm 1950. Now, one of the things that you probably are familiar with is Superstorm Sandy. That's probably the latest superstorm that many of the listeners have as a reference point. So how do you or how do you define or why do you define this as a superstorm? And why did this one that you write about get classified as one? And how does it differ from, say, a Superstorm Sandy? I think Superstorm Sandy actually is another example, um, as well as the blizzard of 93, which some of the older listeners may remember as well. Um, and I wanted to try to define this because I think as meteorologists, if we don't define this within the community, others will start throwing this term out there. We, we live in this age of social media where the things that get the most clicks tend to get the most shares and the most repeats and hyperbole and you throwing out terms like superstorm or other, whatever the hot meteorological term is, polar vortex, we've seen that in the last few years, um, gets the attention. And I think as meteorologists, 
it's worthwhile to try to set superstorms apart from ordinary storms because their effects are so much more wide ranging. Disaster in this response in this country tends to be focused on let's get resources to where they be where they're needed. But when we have a storm like this that is causing record setting weather in 26 states comprising two thirds of the US population, there's just not enough resources to go around. We need to start thinking about a different approach. So then as a meteorologist, the question is, where do we draw the line? And in the last chapter, I start to outline some broad criteria. And here, especially if you're a synoptic climatologist listening to this podcast, I'd really like you to take the ball and run with this a little better to try to help refine this definition a little more broadly. But the four criteria I set out are there mid-latitude cyclones, as opposed to hurricanes. We already know what hurricanes are. We've got a good, well-defined term for them that people understand. They cause significant impacts over a large area. Large area, I was trying to come up with a good number for what large means. And one definition I came up with is about double the size of California. But that's tough to wrap your head around. So another way to think about it is NOAA has set up climate regions across the country. If this storm affects more than three of them, you know, that's a good bar or even just the, the northeast and southeast regions, because 40 percent of the country's population lives in those two regions. And any storm that affects the eastern seaboard is going to generally have a big impact. Um, the other thing is they have multiple record setting hazards. Superstorm 1950 set records for snow, ice, flooding, wind, uh, cold. You know, these each one of these would be a story in and of itself, but to have them all at the same time define, sets us apart from a regular storm that might have record snow or record cold, but not all of these other things. And finally, this is where the geographical component comes in, significant disruption to society in terms of property destruction, lives lost, or economic disruption. This was the most expensive storm at the time it occurred. It killed over 300 people. We haven't seen anything uh, comparable to that with the exception of a few hurricanes. Obviously caused a lot of property destruction. Um, but this also means that it took a lot longer for things to get back to normal across the country. Now, I'm curious, just you have a backdrop. The, the listeners can't see this, but your backdrop in your your Zoom profile is of a downtown urban area covered in snow, um, uh, snow up to cover up to the top of, uh, the, of cars and, and people walking in these sort of mounds of snow. So give us give us a little backdrop on what I'm looking at and paint the picture for our listeners. Sure. Well, this is actually one of the pictures in the book as well. I think it's the iconic image of the storm. It shows Pittsburgh. It's a picture taken from Webster Avenue, looking back toward downtown Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh set a record 30.2 inches of snow. Remember, this is in November they set this record, not the months we usually think of as being snowy months. Um, and behind me, you can see cars completely buried in the snow, as well as trolleys. In 1950, Pittsburgh had quite a well-developed trolley system, actually. The only thing moving around are people walking with their feet, and they've basically carved paths through the snow on the sidewalk. People after the storm walked incredible distances through the snow, distances that sound incredible to me today to walk in good weather. I mean, people in this snowstorm, they were walking miles, three, four, six, ten miles to get to work, to get things from the store, um, to even get to their own wedding. And to me, to walk three, four, six miles in fair weather sounds like a challenge. I don't know how they did it in knee-deep snow, but you can see on that picture behind me numerous people walking through the snow. And I got a few more pictures in the book of people walking through the snow. Um, it was incredible people's resilience and willingness to just get up and go. 
But speaking of that, in terms of, say, the forecast community, communicators, politicians, emergency managers, uh, were there any places in society where there, we faltered in preparing for this storm? I don't think we were particularly capable of preparing for the storm for two reasons. One, the meteorological community just didn't have the knowledge that they have nowadays. We didn't have weather data from over Canada or the oceans. We didn't have satellites. Um, and we were still developing the equations of meteorology. In fact, this storm proved really helpful at developing those equations and models because it was so unusual. People like Norm Phillips and Yul Sharney and the other giants of the Princeton group used this storm to really refine their understanding of the atmosphere and help develop models, which, which really are amazing today in terms of helping us prepare. But even if we had known this storm was coming, disaster response in 1950 was largely local and state, and we didn't have the resources. In the snowy areas, we had nowhere near enough snow removal equipment. So even if we've had a perfect forecast, it wouldn't matter, we didn't have the stuff. The snow removal equipment had the same issues. We, we, we know about that here in the South, by the way. <laughs> true, true. Um, they didn't have the tires and the reliability that modern vehicles have. You know, clutches would burn out, they'd stall out. Down in the South, thousands and thousands of pipes froze. There's, there's not time to go out and suddenly insulate your pipes. I mean, maybe you could drain your radiator, I suppose, um, but people down there, and, and how to prepare for falling trees in Vermont or four inches of ice in Altoona that knocks out every transmission line. You can't prepare for, for a lot of that stuff in advance. Um, better forecasts would have helped, but in 1950, would people have listened to the forecasts? Look at how often people ignore our forecasts today. Yeah, I want to mention something you wrote in the book. You said, although storms today are more expensive, the death toll has only been exceeded twice in the past 72 years. Do you think that's because of the advancements that we've made since that you just mentioned? Um, yes, I, th I think a lot of it is because the advancement people listen to the forecast these days, although you can go into social media and find plenty of people saying meteorologists are always wrong. A great example was was last week in my city. The schools largely closed the night before a snowstorm. When I was a kid, I had to get up and listen to the radio. And when my parents were kids, they went to school no matter what. <laughs> if they got stuck there, they got stuck there. So people do trust the forecasts. And that has a nice snowball effect because then people do secure loose objects. They do make sure they have enough supplies. We love to make fun of people going to stores and stocking up on bread, beer, and toilet paper. But this is actually really smart behavior because if you're gonna be stuck at home for a few days, those are some essentials. I don't know if the beer is necessarily essential, but, but you get my drift there. Sure. So the forecasts make a huge difference today. I think, um, though, one where one way we're really vulnerable to superstorms is because the effects are large ranging. People could be stuck at home, especially without power for longer periods. We don't have the resilience people had in 1950. 1950, most people had their homes heated by coal. Power goes out, no big deal. You just keep shoveling the coal in. Nowadays, my gas furnace is fairly old in my house, but it does not run without electricity. And there are many houses that are all electric. And we saw a lot of these issues in Texas in 2021. Now, Texas has some unique issues with our power grid that, that we can also talk about. But if we think about a more widespread storm affecting more states, causing a much wider range of power outages, and it's tough to move because there's snow, ice, and cold all around, um, we could see issues, real concern with people being stuck without power for extended periods. So I think the takeaway message is, we also need to build more resilience and reduce our vulnerability to these sorts of weather disasters. 
And that's something I think really for emergency managers to think about. What if my community loses power for three, four or five days? Will I need to open shelters? How will people get around? You know, how will we deal with, with problems that come up? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. David Call, and we're talking about Superstorm 1950. And I want to bring it forward to how a storm like this would impact us today. But before I do that, I found a couple of interesting tidbits that our producers dug out. You mentioned that this storm changed the Ohio State football program and government tax policy. What do you mean? Uh, there's all sorts of fun stories out of it. Um, I'll do the tax one first. A lot of communities in 1950 still had this depression era funding. So this storm hits right at the end of the year. We're out of money. How are we going to pay for it? So this was most common in Pennsylvania. Several municipalities put these nuisance taxes in, as they're called today, but like $5 per capita tax. We're going to charge every person in our area five bucks to help pay for snow removal. Well, the thing was, the next year came up and all of a sudden they're like, you know, we could really use this money for something else. And these nuisance taxes have persisted in many parts of Pennsylvania, especially for decades. And it's the silliest thing. You spend like two bucks a head school tax or three dollars a head for, because you work a job. Um, but this storm led to a growth in that. Now, the Ohio State football story. So a lot of football games were played in the midst of this storm. And in snowy areas, they tended to be full of punts and fumbles and turnovers um, in areas in the Northeast, they were really muddy, sloppy affairs. Ohio State played in absolutely atrocious conditions. The conditions were so bad, the spectators in the upper parts of the stands couldn't even see the field. The game was delayed 20 minutes because they couldn't get the tarp off, and they'd have people come down from the stands to lift the tarp off. Well, as the game went on, the teams resorted to punting back and forth. And Ohio State had a particularly disastrous punt that Michigan blocked and fell on in the end zone, gave Michigan a lead. That they would never relinquish and they won nine to three in these absolutely awful conditions. They didn't get a single first down the entire game. No team has ever won a football game without getting a first down. They didn't complete any passes either. Well, the coach at Ohio State had done pretty well. He'd gotten them to bowl games each year. He, I think he had nine and three record that year, but he'd never beaten Michigan in four tries. And of course, this punt on second down, a lot of people said, why are you punting on second down? It's almost halftime anyway. So essentially, the media and fans ran him out of town. He resigned a few days later. Ohio State needs a new coach. The board decides to gamble on this person nobody's ever heard of before from this small school in Western Ohio, Miami of Ohio. But he won his football game in bad conditions, 28 nothing. 
young, I think 35 years old at the time, this guy named Woody Hayes. Of course, Woody Hayes went on to win five national titles with Ohio State, brought the program to great prominence, and Ohio State's still a national powerhouse to this very day. And I think if it hadn't been for this storm, the sequence of events that led to him coming there, the fact that he won a game in bad conditions, while his predecessor at Ohio State lost a game under, I think, even worse conditions, but similarly bad conditions. Um, you know, Ohio State must just be another mediocre Big Ten program if it hadn't been for this storm. Well, speaking as a Georgia Bulldog who faced those Ohio State Buckeyes recently in the Final Four matchup, I can attest to how uh, worthy they were as an opponent. We squeaked by them just barely to get to the national championship game. And that's a really interesting tidbit of a story. I want to fast forward because you say in your book that our vulnerability to to disaster has increased. And I think you touched on some of that when you were talking about the all-electric homes and lack of coal power, although there are some downsides of coal powering and those types of things too. But uh, why do you say our vulnerability has increased? Well, for one thing, we're a lot more reliant on electrical systems than in the past. Yeah. Um, And so you get massive tree damage. The Vermont utility called it their worst disaster on record. You get massive tree damage throughout multiple states. That's going to cause a lot of trouble. As I mentioned before, a lot of our heating systems and other systems just will not operate without electricity. And as a society, we don't have sort of the same ability to tinker with machines. So for example, some of the gas stations in Altoona, well, they couldn't run their pumps because they didn't have power. They hooked up, say, lawnmower motors or washing machine motors to power their pumps. My washing machine has a mower, but I don't motor, but I don't know how I could hook it up to operate my furnace or my refrigerator or any of those other things. So we don't have some of that ability to weather disaster like the past. The other big difference is we have. But don't we have things that make us more resilient, though, like cell phones and instant communication? And I mean, I'm just saying, wonder if some of the things that we do have that they didn't have cancel some of that out. I think that helps. But again, if we get a blackout like they had in Altoona, our cell phone towers are probably going to crumble under that. Good point. And and if you can't move around because of fallen trees or or ice or snow, that's going to make it harder. I recall with some of the hurricanes down in the South, you know, landlines have proven surprisingly effective because the cell phone circuits get overloaded and then your phone battery dies and you can't charge it. Again, you can maybe buy some battery packs to help yourself out. And I highly recommend those, especially for disasters. But um, that's one area. The other area is economically, we're a lot more vulnerable. Houses are worth a hell of a lot more. And our amount of coastal development in places like New Jersey, where they had incredible waves, but all along the coast, there's an incredible amount of real estate and people living in coastal areas where a storm like this is just going to wreak havoc uh, and cause, we saw that with Sandy, uh, and then we saw it a little later with Harvey. Um, The storms these days can dump incredible amounts of precipitation, and there's just so much expensive coastal real estate, uh, and even inland real estate. I mean, the value of my house here in Deanda, Indiana, I can't believe how much it's increased in recent years. A tree falls on my house the insurance losses are just going to be staggering. And of course, then I got to find a contractor to rebuild my house. And it's going to be a lot more expensive than it was then when they talked about damages being on the order of hundreds of dollars. You adjust that for inflation, you get damages on the order of five dollars or $10,000. It would take almost nothing for my house these days to get ten dollars or $20,000 in damage. I mean, if a tree falls on it, it's probably $100,000 in damage. And my house is pretty modest. No, it's a great point. Now, talk to, talk about the communities that were impacted or that were most vulnerable to the storm of 1950, and how would that compare to, would those same communities be as vulnerable today? 
think a lot of the snowbound areas recover more quickly. A lot of the issues in the snowbound areas were stalled cars blocking roads and abandoned cars blocking roads because it becomes a vicious cycle. If you have cars blocking roads, then plows can't get through. And if plows can't get through, more snow piles up. So in Cleveland, they still had an estimated 10 to 12,000 cars littering their streets Wednesday following the storm. Storm occurred on a weekend. And in Pennsylvania, it took them five, six days to untangle the mass of cars at the end of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which at that point was in Pittsburgh area. Um, today, with people staying off the road because of forecasts, we'd be able to recover a lot more quickly from the snow. Cities, as we mentioned earlier, too, have a lot more snow clearing equipment, or at least in areas that tend to get snow measured in feet <laughs> as opposed to down in the south. Um, the ice storm, though, that would still take a long time. I mean, they got three to four inches of ice in Altoona. There's no quick way through that, especially when you get sub-zero temperatures following that. The flooding yeah, even, along even the as coast. We were, excuse me, I, I just wanted to interject that even as we are recording this, parts of Memphis and Dallas and yep. mid the Great Plains are experiencing a significant ice storm. Yeah, and you get more than an inch or two of ice, your infrastructure starts to fail pretty wide, uh, widely. So I'm going to be curious to see how much ice they get out of that storm. Um, the flooding, we've built a lot more levees to protect places like Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, which had three feet of water. As I mentioned a few moments ago, in coastal areas, the waves from this storm would destroy immense amounts of, of property. And the cold in the south, I don't think would affect people as severely because we've done a lot to fight poverty. Um, but we would see a lot of the same impacts we saw in 1950. The people that bear the brunt of the impacts of the storm throughout the country are going to largely be people with lower income, uh, people that earn you know, wages, hourly wages, as opposed to salary people and people of color. Um, we'd also see probably the effects being worse on men because men don't tend to heed the warnings. And in snow areas, men tend to still shovel the snow. And boy, if you're between 40 and 75, shoveling snow is dangerous for your heart. Um, Made me go out and buy a snowblower. <laughs> but, uh, but we would still see, I think, those same things. And I think that's what's neat. This book helps bring to a wider audience knowledge of things we know within the community about how disasters affect different groups differently. But I don't think that's something that a lot of people are really aware of, um, how much yeah, worse great, these impacts are for certain groups. Yeah, that's a great point. And I've done some research on that as well, particularly in urban context and urban weather and climate um, environments. Uh, any other before we get out of here, any other research you want to share? Are there any other things you've been up to? Um, this project's been pretty neat but I'm taking a little break from it. And actually I'm, I'm working on another book. I guess once you catch the book uh, writing bug, you keep going on uh, my storm chasing adventures. You mentioned at the top of the, the uh, podcast, that's something I do. I've taken out 18 groups of students covering more than hundred thousand miles. So I've got a lot of neat storm chasing uh, stories, but I'm also gonna interweave it with some of the latest stuff on severe thunderstorm and tornado research, because a lot of people, especially broader lay people are really interested in that stuff. I think it'll make for a neat story communicating some of the latest findings on that. Maybe after that project, I'll circle back here. There's a book to be written on these early modelers and how they developed the forecast models that we take for granted these days. As I say, if a, a synoptic climatologist doesn't go doing more research into that definition of superstorms, I might uh, take up that mantle myself. Yeah, well, we certainly welcome you back to Weather Geek City time to chat with us. And I think we've got to end it there. Is there anywhere that people can find you on social media or on, on the web? Uh, I have a website, drdavecall.com. I was blogging fairly regularly. 
until I had some uh, medical issues back in December, but I'm going to get started back on that blog some more. I do have a whole bunch of entries actually about the book in the storm. So it's a great way to dip your toe a little uh, more into it if you're interested in uh, getting the book, but you're not quite ready to commit. And of course, I've got links to Purdue Press and Amazon and, and all the other booksellers that have it. Well, make sure you go out there and check this out because it sounds very fascinating. Got to end it here. I really enjoyed this conversation. But before I get out of here, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Nick Panico the third. Is that the third? Yes. He is an earth science teacher and a hurricane, hurricane blizzard chaser himself with 18 hurricane eyewall interceptions. Unsurprisingly, his most memorable event was also a hurricane, specifically Katrina, uh, and its impacts on Waveland, Mississippi. Uh, stay safe out there in the upcoming hurricane season, Nick, and thank you for listening to Weather Geeks. Uh, thank you so much, David, for joining us on the podcast. Great to talk with you today, Marshall. Yeah, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and uh, again, I, I'm just really, I'm probably going to end every podcast this year with this statement because we have some really exciting and interesting podcasts ahead, so keep listening, and thank you all for listening. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time.